right, well, last weekend, DJ and I watched a film called Women Talking. Have any of you seen that film? Tyler has. <laughs> Tyler has, okay. Anyone else? <laughs> well, the film is based on a book, and the book captures a story of a Mennonite community in Bolivia, so in South America. I think it's sometime, sometime in the 2010s, so it's a contemporary story. And as the story goes, the women of this community, women of all ages, are sadly suffering abuse at the hands of the men in this community. And the 90-minute movie more or less covers a period of, basically a 24-hour period of time where these women come together and they have to decide whether they are going to stay and endure uh, the situation that they're in, whether they are going to leave and just remove themselves from the community entirely, or whether they're going to fight back against their abusers. There are many captivating things about this film, uh, but what I was most struck by last weekend as we watched was watching how these women, when they came together uh, to face this, this force that was pressing upon them, was how quickly this force, and I'm going to go ahead and just call it uh, evil, evil working its way through these particular men influencing their behavior, how quickly this external force seemed to drive the women to look inward until they in fact began sort of feuding and fighting and spitting venom on one another. And I was really struck by that. And so I've been thinking about this uh, in light of our passage this morning. We're in James 4 today. And when Jeremiah kicked us off in this, this series a few weeks ago, he reminded us that James was originally writing to Messianic uh, Christians or, or Jewish Christians. And James was a leader in the early church, as most of us know. And during his 20 years or so of leadership, this first church, this first church community faced difficult times. They were up against some struggle. There was famine that was leading to poverty throughout the region, and the church was facing persecution as well. And so these early Christians, they were up against some major outside forces, some cultural forces, some external pressures that would have contributed to the strain and struggle that was bubbling up within the church. So this is the context in which James is writing. Now, as far as I know, and I may be wrong about this, but as far as I, as I know, most of us have never experienced sustained persecution because of our faith. Am I accurate about that for the most part? Okay. Most of us, as far as I know, have not experienced sustained poverty or if we had had some of those tighter financial times, most of us have communities of support or networks of support around us that can maybe hold us through some of those times. And again, as far as I know, on a daily basis, most of us don't question whether or not we're going to have food on the table or if our physical needs are going to be met or if we're going to have a sense of safety. We we aren't faced with the same kinds of pressures that those early Christians faced, right? Nor do we struggle against the same kinds of forces pressing up against us as contemporary Christians in this country. But I do think we understand something about this. 
I think we understand something about this. Can you think of scenarios in your own life where the intensity of circumstance around you led to some kind of dis-ease or distress inside of you, and perhaps even to an eruption of some kind around you? Can you think about maybe those times in your own life? Can you name some of the the cultural pressures pushing up against the church today? Be that the church in the Western world, as we might experience it, or in other parts of the world. Can you identify how some of these external forces contribute to havoc within, havoc within the church? I want to talk about some of these things today. I I want uh, to look at how what's happening inside of us inside our hearts, can absolutely affect what happens around us. And I want to look at what's happening around us in the broader culture can affect what's happening inside us, both within our person, inside our hearts, and inside of our church communities. And of course, we want to do that with scripture as our our lens and our window. James, as far as I can tell, is deeply attuned to the human condition and speaks to it with wisdom. And I believe what he offers is hopeful and practical ways forward uh, for us through struggle and challenge. So I have found a lot of hope and um, encouragement in in the passage for this morning, and I look forward to sharing it now with all of you. So we are in James 4, verses 1 through 10 this morning. I believe we'll have the scripture, thank you, John, up there on the screen. You're welcome to read along or just listen, if that helps your imagination at all. James 4 goes like this. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for nothing that the scriptures say God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives all the more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So, conflicts, disputes, disagreements, bubbling up within and among the church. Do we know anything about that? Sadly, we do. This happens, doesn't it? I'm curious, by a show of hands, and never feel pressure if I'm asking for hands to go up, but if you're willing, by a show of hands, how many of you have been a part of a local church community in the last decade or two that has suffered some kind of split 
Oh, wow. More than I would thought. Okay. All right. How about this? Who's been part of a church community where conflict has erupted, causing splinters or factions to form among you? Okay. Nearly all of us. Not terribly surprising. I think what James is addressing here isn't anything new for us. Stick around any Christian community long enough, and you'll experience some kind of tension or conflict that has the potential to do damage, especially if it goes unchecked. I don't think this is a quote-unquote church problem. I think this is a human problem. James names the cause for such conflict. He says that these battles happening amongst you stem from something happening inside of you. Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and you do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. It's as if James is saying, if you want to understand why you're fighting, pay attention to the state of your heart. Pay attention to the push and the pull inside of you and be careful because if that's not dealt with, it won't stay just inside of you because that's not how the human person works. And that's not how community life works either. Think about your own experience, your day-to-day life uh, for just a moment. Again, can you think of some scenarios when something off inside of you, some kind of distress has led you to say something or do something that hurt someone else or caused some kind of tension or conflict. We do this all the time, don't we? We do this all the time. And I think most of us understand this. This is a very, as far as I can tell, this is a very self-aware Church, I think our collective emotional IQ here at UCC is, is tips towards, you know, the higher end. I think we get this. We know this. If we aren't carefully tending to what's happening inside of us, it will more than likely overflow and do some damage to the people around us. James goes on and he asks us to look at how we, how we respond when we're up against such conflict. What do we do when war is surfacing inside us and around us? He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. I think James is putting it quite plainly in calling us to examine the quality of our prayer lives. You know, and again, I think if most of us, most of us, if we've been a part of a faith community for some time, we know that going to God in prayer is a solid, foundational move, especially when we're in a situation or a prolonged season of some kind of distress or some kind of disease or struggle. We know that. Most of us know that. But it isn't always a natural instinct especially when those pesky emotions get in the way. When situations are heightened or intensified or when the stakes feel big, we aren't always prone to go to God in prayer. I'll just speak for myself, but more often I think that we're prone to try to figure it out in our own 
strength. I see this in myself. I tend towards problem solving before I might necessarily go to prayer. And so James reminds us, he wants us to look closer, not just if we're praying, but the posture of our prayer. What's the posture of our prayer? What's the motivation behind the prayer? Are you praying in an attempt to set your, your will down and align with God's will for a situation? Are we simply asking God to just bend to our wills, to meet our needs? Do we go to God with, with open hands, releasing what needs to be released in order to receive what needs to be received? Or are we a, li a little bit more closed off, still a bit tightened, quenching for our own desire, regardless of what that might mean for other people, for the people around us. I think it's a good challenge for us. I think it's a good challenge for us to examine those, those things in our life. You know, in the film, Women Talking, when these women come together, when they are up against this major force and pressure that's, that's impressing itself upon them and threatening, in this case, their lives, um, there are several moments, as you can imagine, of really heightened intensity. Emotions flame up and, and boil over, causing some of the women to kind of lash out at one another. There's even a scene where a young wo woman has a, a physical response, some kind of seizure or um, a panic uh, response, a panic episode. But here's what I observed in the film. <clears throat> On each one of those intense occasions, each time, the, in the intensity of the situation heightened. One of the women would diffuse the situation in one of two ways. Do you remember Tyler? <laughs> they would do one of two things. They would either start singing a hymn or they would start reciting scripture until the entire group all of a sudden started to join and unison returned to the group. And then something really mysterious happened. Do you remember DJ? <laughs> Usually you've got a lot to say. Okay. <laughs> Laughter. Laughter would happen. In the middle of the tension, laughter would happen. And so I think these scenes, for me anyway, they, they demonstrate the power of prayer and the power of turning to God in our greatest moments of need, remembering who God is in light of who we are, that indeed our God is big enough to handle anything and everything all the time. So when we see conflict bubbling up amongst us, can we slow down enough to notice first what might be happening inside us that might be contributing to the disputes? And then second, the condition or the posture of our prayer. I think this takes work. I think it takes discipline. I think it takes maturity. But I think it's critical for our communities of faith to enter into this work with a commitment to seek God in the midst of everything and the God-given good in one another, especially in times of heightened conflict or disease. I mentioned earlier that I, I want us to consider some of the cultural pressures that are pushing against the church today and how they might contribute to conflict bubbling up within our communities. Think on that with me for just a moment. 
What do you see? What comes to mind for you as you think about some of the pressures or the forces that might be kind of pulling at the seams of the church? And I don't just mean UCC. I mean the church. What do you guys see? What did you say, Mary C? Political. Certainly. You want to say anything more about that? <laughs> you don't have to. You don't have to. Okay. How about, um, yeah, the, maybe the American political system, right? It's, yeah. Sure. Yes. Weariness. Constant barrage of weariness. Yeah, the church is being bifurcated more and more and more, it seems, and not just separating, but like guns ablazing on either side. Absolutely. Randy. Sure. Sure. So maybe how about even just the way that we engage with the biblical text? That as a, that in its, of its own self might impact how we come together as a church. Yeah, that's good. What else? Other forces, other cultural movements, tides that are sweeping through that Yeah, Katie. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. Sure. So, yeah, so, so, um, so uh, individuals not just necessarily wanting to preach the gospel, but wanting to control the lives of neighbors through different kinds of force. Is that accurate, Katie? Okay. What else? Oh, interesting. Randy said seduction to ideology rather than Jesus. Sure. Yeah, across the board, ideologies of various kinds, right? How about a global pandemic? That certainly did some splitting up of churches. All kinds of factors we could look at around that, you know. Masking, no masking. Vaccine, no vaccine. I can think about some decisions uh, made at the Supreme Court level recently. It's led to some ripples within our communities. Some of you might remember this. I remember very clearly last summer, I think it was June or July, whenever Roe versus Wade was overturned. And there were, what? May. Thank you, Katie. Okay, May. Katie knows, man. There were two, we had a time of prayer, as we often do, and there were two voices on that day. I was standing up here. I remember it very clearly because it made me sweat. There was one <laughs> prayer that was praying a prayer of lament about what that choice meant for women. And there was another prayer praying a prayer of praise about what that choice meant for unborn children, right? Different perspectives right here among us. Both honest. Both heartfelt prayers. I think when we start thinking about it, there's all kinds of outside pressures or cultural forces or tensions that do press upon the church and cause us to be ripped and pulled at the seams. Sometimes to me, it feels like the church is this tiny little boat 
on this big stormy ocean just getting knocked over and uh, uh, back and forth, pulled apart by every cultural wave. And the wave, the force outside, to me, doesn't seem to be the greatest threat. It's what happens to the crew and the, the passengers inside the boat when fear and anxiety come aboard and start sloshing around all over the main deck and below the deck. We see this play out time and time again. We feel a pressure or a force swirling in the culture around us, and if we're not careful, it can start pulling at the seams of the church, threatening our unity. You know, most of us know, I think, that we don't, we don't grow as God's people or as Christian communities by avoiding conflict. That's not the way forward. But I think how we approach the conflict or these forces that impress themselves upon us as the church, that's maybe the question for us. Again, it's a question of posture. When the, the cultural wave of the week starts to wake up and threaten, what do we, what do, we do and I think there's always a temptation for us as the church to stay insular, to protect ourselves, to grip tightly to convictions, to disengage from the culture around us and pretend like the woes of the world are not our concern. That's one temptation, just kind of go inward. Or I think then there's the opposite temptation for us as the church. It's to, to print our convictions on a banner and dog-ear all the clobber verses in scripture and take to the streets, guns ablazing, ready to tell all those sinners who might also happen to be Christians how they ought to live. To your point, Katie. Neither of these approaches look like Jesus to me. And both of them, I think, really weaken our Christian witness to the world. So what do we do? James tells us, I think James is calling the church to a posture of humility. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. James is calling us to a better way. It's a way of wisdom. It's a way of humility, it's a way of reliance on God, not our own power or our own strength. It's a way of confidence and boldness to take up the authority we've been given through the power of the Spirit, to make the devil flee. Notice it doesn't say make the devil kind of walk away with its head down. Make the devil flee. James calls us to our knees to repentance, to turn back to God time and time again when these forces in the world come up against us and threaten our unity. Jesus did not run away from the world, quite the opposite. He came into the world. He got low to the ground. He sat with, he ate with, he talked with, he walked with humanity with a message of good news that indeed the kingdom of God has drawn near. And Jesus calls us, as his disciples, to do the same. To go into the world, to get low to the ground, to sit with, to eat with, to walk with, to talk with one another with a message of good news that indeed the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. The posture we're after here is one 
of connection to the world and to God. One foot in the world, one foot connected to God with our arms outstretched, just trying to bring the two closer together. Connected to the world and ready to engage with it with humility and with boldness and connected to God. Ready to engage God every single step along the way. Going to God with reverence, relying on God for all of our strength. Going to God who gives us good maps for how to navigate the things that feel impossible in front of us. We don't need to be controlled by or overcome by every cultural tide that smacks up against the church, but we do need to respond wisely and gently and kindly when faced with perspectives that differ from our own. To say that another way, we need to resist the temptation to use Pharaoh's tools to build the kingdom. The way of the world is swords and spears. Pharaoh's palace is built atop a foundation of coercion and fear and scarcity and division. Power is grasped and gripped in the empire. The way of God is plowshares and pruning hooks. God's house is built atop a foundation of peace and gentleness and mercy and abundance. Power is shared and released in the kingdom. Even though I'm a millennial, I still have a great deal of hope in the church. I believe God is doing a new thing, and I believe God is calling us, especially the church in the West, to get on our knees, to take a posture of humility, to humble ourselves before Almighty God, to open our hands first to release what needs to be released, and we got a lot of stuff to release, so that we can receive what God wants to give us. That's what I see. If we're going to win the battle against evil, that which festers in our own hearts, trying to trip us up and destroy us every chance it gets, and the grander evil that seeks to disorient and divide the global church, we have to be willing to get low. We have to find ways to stay on our knees and become a community that prays each and every day, going before the Lord with open hands, saying, what today, Father? What do I need to let go of? What do I need to pick up? This is not a surefire way to success. I hate to tell you. This is not the best strategy necessarily for climbing the food chain or the social ladder, start operating this, operating this way, and you, you might lose friends. And you might lose jobs. And you might lose some level of influence in certain circles. It might lead you to people and places that you'd rather not go, as it did the first apostles and Christians in the faith throughout the last 2,000 years, but I believe you will find life along the way. I believe it. What might feel like death to you looks like life to other people. We know this. Jesus' way is upside down and backwards. Our Savior's victory parade had him riding in on a donkey, followed by a ragtag bunch of fishermen and nobodies, at least in the world's eyes. And yet, look at how his way has changed things. Talk about lasting societal movement, a cultural wave that cannot be stopped. This is the cultural movement I want to be a part of, with all you fine people. 
So what's that look like in practice? I have, uh, I think, given all the words that I could possibly give this week. So let me just offer one more way to try to communicate this. This is what I think it looks like. Can you see me up there? It's this. It might look weak. I know I'm small, so it might look especially weak. But stay down there long enough, in that posture long enough, and eventually you'll notice that the same posture that seems to be taking everything from you, that's asking you to give everything, is the same posture that allows you to receive. It's the same posture. I don't want to give away the ending of the movie, Watch it, Tyler agrees. So I'll tread, I'll tread lightly here. I think what the film, this film, Women Talking, offers is a vision for what's possible when a group of people come together with a willingness to submit themselves before God and before one another. It's a beautiful and hopeful vision. I believe we find life in that posture. And so I think what I'm asking today is whether or not some of you might join me in that as we walk together as God's people, following in the way of Jesus, asking, God, what are you doing here in the 21st century, in this place, in this community? Consider that this week. Consider what that might look like for you. And then let's test it. Let's try it. Let's see if the way up actually is down. It was for Jesus, right? There was a death, there was a tomb, and then there was a resurrection. And that's what we remember every week when we gather around this table. We remember what Jesus did for us, including his victory over sin and over death. We pray. Father, your ways are unexpected. They challenge us. You use the least likely of people in the most magnificent of ways. You call us to more. You stretch us. You grow us. You desire all of us. Help us to release, Lord, more and more to you, to give our whole selves to you, to give our whole lives to you, so that you can do our, your transformative work in us and through us and around us. Give us imagination, God, for what this looks like in our lives today, in our church today. What does a posture of humility look like for us as 21st century Christians, Cincinnati, Ohio? What would you have us say? What would you have us do? Where would you place us? To whom would you put on our path? Lord, we want your vision for what you're up to. And we know to receive that, we have some things we need to let go of. So Lord, give us wisdom there as well. What do we need to drop? What do we need to let go of so that we can truly pick up your cross as you command us to and walk? We need your imagination. Thank you for Jesus and the pathway, his life, his death, his resurrection opened for us. May we continue to trust in the promise that you have good things in store for us. 
eternal life, not just at the end of life, but now, today, that there's new life waiting for us. Lord, we want to to know you more, to follow you closer, and to invite others along on this great journey you've called us towards. So give us what we need, Lord. Give us courage in order to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.